my ringing telephone. It was good. No, I liked it. Ring, ring. Maybe we should just change our beginning noise. To vroom, just vroom. Ring. ring, ring. I love it. Like an old-timey telephone? Anyway, hello. I, I... <laughs> <laughs> Hi. Hi. How are you? I'm good. I'm sorry that I was late in calling you. I had to pee and pop a pimple. You know? I I truly understand what that that feels like. You got to do what you got to do. Yeah, I was like washing my hand. Okay. Wait, I have I have a debate that I would love to take to Twitter slash Instagram to get everyone's opinions on. Yes, please. Um, okay. How, what are your thoughts on somebody who does not put the toilet paper roll on, on the thing when you're, when it's out? I will say that it, I have an interesting caveat to this mm-hmm. because I'm the person that I always put it directly on and grown to myself about being the backbone of the household. Yes. Oh, me, my entire life. Okay. But I will say there was one point where, because Trevor has a reason for everything, every single thing he does or says he has thought it out. He's the opposite of me in that way. So when the toilet paper didn't go in the roll, I was like, wait, that seems real uncharacteristic. And it was because the toilet paper that we had bought was bigger than the roll, like the 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 space for the roll. Okay. It was like thicker. And so he left it off until we got through enough that it could go comfortably on the roll. And I was like, all right, fine. That makes sense. No, no, see, that's not what I'm talking it about. On there like a monster. That's not what I'm talking about because, because in that case you physically cannot put the toilet paper on the roll. But oh, if you physically could, and I did, but if you are <laughs> able, should you not also be willing to do so? Yes, that's part of being an adult. Okay, okay. Second part of this, it okay. If you have like a little plastic soap dispenser in your bathroom, yes, and it runs out of soap, yes. but only runs out of soap to where when you're like doing the little pumpy thing on it, you just can't quite get soap. So, but you can see the soap. But you can see the soap. There's still like a little layer of soap in there. Do you add water? Um, Is that your question? Do you add water? I do a little bit. Yeah, just a little splash, so it doesn't really change the consistency of the soap. It just kind of loosens it up for you. Yes. I'm not one of those people that will fill it up with water because then it's not soap. Okay. Exactly. Exactly. Even Would you even do this if you had like a refillable jug of soap to refill that little, little? Thank God. Okay. Wow. I, this is why we're best friends because Evan always tells me that not putting the toilet paper roll on the roll is just as bad as putting a little bit of soap in, or water in the soap. And I'm always like, it's not. That's it's not. not no. That's I'm just making sure that we're getting every little piece of soap out of there. And he's like, well, yeah, but we've got a refillable thing. And I'm like, yeah. And eventually that'll be empty. And we're still going to need to get that little tiny layer of soap out. So that's how I'm going to do it. Okay, great. Yeah, I'm with you. Great. As long as I know that I am still a little bit wrong, but less wrong than Evan. How are you? <laughs> I'm good. I, ever since we talked about the fair mm-hmm. in Alaska, I cannot stop thinking about uh, Talkeetna bread. 
Mm, spinach and bread. I want spinach bread. Loaves of spinach bread in my mouth, please, and thank you. Yeah, we should go to Tahitna next year, next summer. I would love that. Cool. Let's do it. What a strange, wonderful little place. Yeah, it's a bizarre town. Um, hey Reagan. What's up? What are we doing right now? You know what? Let me tell you. You want to chat I'm about surprised, it? I'm surprised that you forgot. You're so forgetful. Uh, I know. Please. Every time. Please remind me. Um, so this is what some people might call a podcast. Some people might say that it's a phone call. Some people might say, poor Candela It's who needs to decide. That's what I say. <laughs> and basically, I don't know if you remember this, but we were talking about how super bummed out we were by the entirety of everything. Yeah. And the current state of affairs of pretty much the world. Yeah. And so you had this idea. I'm really, I'm surprised you don't remember this, but <laughs> you were like, me. hey, what if we start a podcast where we learn about different women that are mostly unknown, but should absolutely be household names. And then we can tell each other their stories and get super hyped about them. And I was like, Taylor, that's a great idea. And, and I was like, Oh, stop. <laughs> oh, so you do remember you do. Remember. I, okay, that's uh, no, I mean, no, it's yeah, all so coming back to you now. Celine Dion yeah. style. Okay, cool. I get yeah. it. I get it. I get it. Um, and uh, that's, uh, that's what we're doing. So great. I love it. I'm Taylor. Oh, I'm Reagan. Hi. Mm-hmm. You're just a voice on the other end of the phone. I'm so much more than a voice, and you know that. True. Um, I have a second question for you. Yeah, what's that? When was your babe born? Um, my babe was born in 1887. Ooh, girl, you are born? going first. I'm going first? Okay. You're going oh, first. So Yay. Okay. <clears throat> Taylor. Taylor, 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 Taylor. Taylor Renee. I'm Taylor. Yes. All right. You're outing my middle name. Damn. But in a good way. Not in a, like, Reagan, Kathleen, get over here kind of way. (laughs) Okay, as long as you out your own middle name. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Um, Have you ever heard, and you probably have, and I'm trying not to get my hopes up, but it's fine. Have you ever heard of Violet Jessup? Okay. No. Great. I'm so stoked. So... Violet Constance Jessup, I'll middle name her too, was born on October 2nd, 1887. That's right, exactly 103 years before me. Oh my god, cute. Cool, right? Cool. Cute, I love that. I had already decided to do her, and then I read her birthday, and I was like, well, this is fate. It's fate, yeah. So she's born in Argentina. Her parents were Irish immigrants named William and Catherine, which I just love the idea of, like, Bill and Kathy Jessup, you know? Uh, Bill and Kathy are, like, two of the cutest names. Classic. The last Bill that I knew, I called him Billiam, and it was really more of a, like, a a reflex. I couldn't help it. Yeah, you'd have to. I would will myself to call him Bill or William or, no, it just came out Billiam every time. It's like how if you know a guy named Jim, you have to call him Jimothy. Jimothy. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. That's, you're right. That's exactly how it is. Um, Okay. So, William and Catherine, Jessup, Mm -hmm. Irish immigrants in Argentina, which 
I'm sorry. I should go back. Violet Jessup, I have personally dubbed the woman who can't be killed. Oh, my God. I am so stoked for the story now. It is the best thing. Oh, okay. Cannot so wait. So it, it starts off kind of a bummer. William and Catherine oh, Jessup okay. had nine kids, but only six survived. And Violet was the first to survive. Oh, okay. Starting off her streak. So not the oldest, but the first to survive. So yeah, she ends up being the oldest, but she's the first one to survive. So as the oldest, she got the task of taking care of her younger siblings. But throughout her childhood, she had a lung hemorrhage, scarlet fever, and eventually tuberculosis. Oh my and God, girl, wash your hands. Right. Like just I mean, once. It's 1887. No one's washing their hands. That's true. So okay. when she got tuberculosis, doctors gave her months to live. And guess what? She survived because that's what she mm. does. So when Incredible. she was 16, her dad died from complications to a surgery, which yikes surgery in early 1900s. Nightmare. Uh-huh. Don't want any part of that. Nightmare. Um, her family moved to England. Her mom goes to sea to work as a stewardess while Violet took care of the younger kids. But then her mom got sick. So Violet left school and applied to be a stewardess, which most sea stewardesses were middle-aged. And she was, some records say 17, some say 21, I don't know. But she wore shabby clothes and no makeups to interview, to interviews, which, like, my dream. Yeah, wow. Um, she is eventually hired to the Royal Mail Line and literally ordered to dress down and cover her attractiveness because she's too much of a hottie. Um, she's eventually fired from the Royal Mail line for refusing a sea captain's advances. And he wow. probably got a fucking promotion or something stupid. I don't know. Yeah. Um, so then, oh man, in 1911, she is hired for the White Star Line vessel, the RMS Olympic. <gasps> yep. Yep. Wait. I knew that was where you're gonna put it. Maybe together. I do know this lady. Okay. I knew you were I gonna I... Put it okay, it's fine. <laughs> yes, I think I do know this lady. Okay. Oh, great. It's the great. best story I've ever heard in my life. Wow. Um, I can't stop I'm smiling. So even I'm more excited now that I'm pretty sure I know who this is. So the Olympic is a luxury vessel and the largest civilian liner at the time, and she is working 17-hour days for just over two pounds a month. Oh God. So, yeah, just so much more, you know, commitment to anything than I have, but it's fine. Yeah. So September 20th, 1911, the Olympic left Southampton and collided with a British warship called the HMS Hawk. Some okay. accounts say that the Hawk hit the Olympic. Some say that the Olympic hit the Hawk. Some just say they collided. Who knows? Doesn't matter. But despite holes in the hull of the ship, the Olympic made it back to their harbor safely and no one died. Um, so Violet really enjoyed working on the Olympic and wanted to stay there. But friends of hers convinced her to switch for a better adventure. So on <laughs> April 10th, 1912, 24-year-old Violet boards the most unsinkable ship of all time, the RMS Titanic. I love that you are doing this story. <laughs> It is the best. And I'm so mad that I didn't think of doing it first. That's, that's why I text you as fast as humanly possible 
I'm doing these initials because I didn't want you to take it. Oh, God. I know. I'm I know. so happy that you're doing this story. It's, I have been so excited to tell you the story. Oh, I've God. I've about to explode. But anyway. Wow. Okay. So while on the Titanic, the doctor of the ship took a fatherly, like, protective role to Violet, which helped her deter overly zealous potential suitors and harassers. In her own words, it, quote, kept away one rather persistent man whose work on board placed him in a favorable favorable position and whose overtures rather inclined to nocturnal ramblings and disregard for other people's feelings. Cool. Sounds like a yeah. super cool, chill dude. What a swell guy, you know? Yeah. Cool. Just, but his work on board made him, you know, top notch. So Good news, you guys. He's a real good up. sailor, so... So, yeah. All that other stuff is fine. So, four days later, April 14th, 1912, apparently just after she read the Hebrew prayer book that she brought on board that is supposed to protect from fire and water, um, spoiler alert, the Titanic struck an iceberg in the North Mm -hmm. Atlantic and sank in a little over two hours. Do you know I was just talking about Titanic the movie sorry this is going to be a little bit of a tangent that's fine I was just talking about Titanic the movie because you know how weirdly obsessed I am with that movie I do I do um and every time I watch that movie which is often it's a lot I halfway expect them to miss the iceberg (laughs) I usually just stop it whenever they're back on the deck and she's like, when the boat docks, I'm getting off with you. And I'm like, the end. Oh God. Also though, that's the worst. (laughs) Literally though, every time that they see the iceberg and they're like in the, you know, main room or whatever with turning all the stuff wheel and they're like all like turning the wheel and everything. And they're just like staring at the iceberg. I'm always like, they're for sure going to make it this time. Yeah. Way to go you guys. We did it. Teamwork. Good job. Way to go you guys. (laughs) And I've been watching that movie since I was a small child, and I still, all all the time, all the time. Yeah, I get that. I think that's how I'm going to know that we're in a parallel universe, is that one day I'm going to watch that movie and they are going to miss it, and I'm going to be like, oh, this is my, like, spinning top moment. (laughs) Yeah. You know? And it's it's helpful that you watch it regularly so it won't tip anybody else off. Right. Yeah, that's what I mean. Like, it's just, Titanic is my Inception spinning top. Yeah, I get that for you. Great. I'm really glad. I just need to figure out mine. Sorry. Uh, Uh, She's on the Titanic. Please don't be. I was hoping that you would have interjections throughout this whole story. Mm -hmm. Um, So from her memoirs, she was ordered up on deck to function as an example of how to behave for non-English speaking passengers who couldn't follow the instructions that were being given to them. And later, she was ordered onto Lifeboat 16, and a ship officer handed her a baby as they were being lowered and was like, here, take care of this. So, eight hours later, they're rescued by the RMS Carpathia. Mm -hmm. Am I pronouncing that correctly? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Okay. Just want to make sure. I don't want to be like, um, it's Carpathia or whatever. I don't know. It might be Carpathia, but I don't think it really matters. Um, once she's on board, a woman, and then every account that I said, no, not said, read, said, 
mm-hmm. in quotes, possibly slash hopefully the baby's mother grabbed the baby from Violet and ran off without a word. What? Yeah. This woman I mean, just runs up, grapples and grabs this baby and runs off, which like, if it is the mother, I get it because you're so relieved and you're like losing your mind. And it's the most traumatic thing that's ever happened to you. But you think there would be like a thank you or an, oh my God, or my baby or something. I don't know, man. I feel like, I feel like if that was the mother, then you've just lived through the Titanic, which is like such a huge thing. And you think you've lost your baby after like eight hours, 10 hours since it hit the iceberg. Yeah. You know, I feel like that's warranted. I would just expect there to be a word, but I mean, you know, just like, Hey, this is mine. Bye. Excuse me. That's mine. (laughs) Yeah. I don't know. Um, so because remember all the, like, lung issue she had in her childhood yeah because of all that she had really weak lungs and so she needed constant fresh air so she said quote despite my fear I chose the sea I knew if I meant to continue my sea life I must return at once otherwise I would lose my nerve so later that year my god world war one she's serving in the British Red Cross and um they turn the Britannic, which is the third sister of the Olympic, the Titanic, the Britannic is the third. Mm-hmm. Um, they turn it into a hospital ship. They like, convert it into a hospital ship. Oh, and it's how scary. <laughs> yeah, apparently, like the British government was making deals with ship builders and ship owners and giving them tax breaks if they would convert their ships into war vessels or hospital vessels or the like. So the Britannic, which was larger than the Titanic um, and a White Star Line luxury ship is transferred to a hospital ship. So November 21st, 1916, she's on board the Britannic and an unexplained explosion happens, which now we know that they struck a German deep sea mine in the Aegean Sea, and mm. it sank in less than an hour. Are di- are deep sea mines still a thing? Probably, right? I think so, because how are you going to, like, go back and pick them all up, you know? That is the scariest Which, thing. Which, like, now we have, like, lights and radar and stuff like that, but yeah, I think they still exist. Oh my god. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Which there's a whole documentary about this called The Mystery of the Britannic that um, I watched today, and it's fascinating. It has nothing to do with Violet or her life. It's just, like, how they discovered – because literally up until 2016, they didn't know why the Britannic sank. They were just like, there was an explosion, and no one knows. And then a 100 years after it happened, this diver who was, like, really – hell-bent on figuring it out. Like, the Britannic was his life mission. He put all the pieces together, and there's a documentary that you can watch on Amazon Prime called The Mystery of the Britannic. It's so good. Personally, I really love the reenactments where they get you to, like, feel invested in the characters' lives, but you never learn their names. Yeah, fun. Okay. It's a good time. (laughs) So, it sank in less than an hour, but... 
it was it wasn't a full passenger load and it was extre- an extremely well run evacuation so of the 1066 people on board only 30 of them were lost wow Which still 30 people that sucks but compared to the titanic compared to the titanic yeah holy not shit not a horrific tri- disaster no so while the britannic is sinking the propellers were sucking lifeboats under the stern which is how those 30 people died. Oh my God. Yeah. Yeah. That is horrifying. Horrifying. In every way. Yes. That is like, that's like just about as horrifying as I would, as when I think of like that the Titanic broke and that there were going to be people underneath it when it like landed, fell, you know? Yeah. That That's, wow, that's no good. No, not even a little bit. Um, so she jumped from her lifeboat as it was being dragged under and she was sucked under anyway, hit her head super hard and had traumatic head injury on the hull of the ship. And guess what? She survived. I wish that you could see my face right now. I, I'm blown away by that. Every part of it gets, it gets better. How did this woman ever sleep? I have no how idea. Does, how do your experiences in life at this point not just keep you awake all the time? Yeah. These are like my number one fears that this lady is just like racking up. So many of them. Okay. And she survives. So, man. Years after the Britannic sinking, she goes to the doctor for headaches and he finds out that while she, when she hit her head, she sustained a skull fracture. Of course, of course, what, of course she did. So my theory is in a past life, you were Violet and that's why you have migraines. (gasps) Oh my God. Skull fracture, dude. This is my favorite theory so far. Jumping off the Britannic. I've had a bunch of people tell me maybe this is my origin story and that I'm just going to gain powers. Ooh, yeah, 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 yeah. But I I like this one, too. I mean, why can't they both be true? You know, I like that even more. I think that you originally started out as Violet Jessup, and uh, this is just your second go at it. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Come at me, Grim Reaper. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. So after the third ship she's on that gets struck, she returns to the White Star Line. No, stop it. A, stop going on the water. B, stop going to White Star Line. I know. But then she transfers to the Red Star Line, where she went around the world at least twice, if not some some places say she went around five times on their largest ship called the Belgian Land. There were no more boats sinking. That was her last one. Good news. So, right? Yeah, that's nice. She was briefly married and has no kids, but it's like her husband and the whole thing is a huge mystery. No one knows what happened. She just like in passing in one of her memoirs was like, and then my husband, blah, blah, blah. And everybody's like, wait, what? (laughs) Sorry, you're who now? Wow. Um, So, again, (laughs) no one knows what that's about. Uh, She worked on the Royal Mail line again until she retired to Great Ashfield in Suffolk. Um, which, so she tells a story in 
some of her memoirs and such and like to interviewees or interviewers, I guess about how one day towards the end of her life, she got a phone call from someone asking if she was Violet Jessup and if she was the stewardess on boat 16 in the Titanic. Mm-hmm. And when she says, yes, the person says, I was the baby that you saved. Oh and, my God. Then, and then they laughed and hung up. And so some people were like, oh, it's a prank call. Oh, you know, these kids these days, damn hooligans and whatnot. But she was always like, no, I'd never told that story before. No one knew oh, that was my God. a baby. So maybe that person's laughter was just like an awkward response to a crazy social situation, you know? I do know. Because wow. I laugh in uncomfortable situations all the time. All the time. I cannot seem to stop it. <laughs> <laughs> and if she hadn't told anybody, yeah. Yeah, if Insane. she hadn't told anybody, like, how would that not be the baby? How would they know? Unless that woman who's, you know, snagged the baby really was the mother and then told the baby as they were growing up this you know she must have been a stewardess right you know yeah oh wow crazy right yeah so on may 5th 1971 she dies of congestive heart failure at the age of 83 which personally i think one yes 1971 i think she was just like you know what i'm tired of this Mm -hmm. Like, pushed a little button on her heart. Because I don't think her heart failed at all. I think she chose and was like, okay, shush, shush, shush. It's time now. <laughs> like, I'm I'm very wow. tired. Um, my favorite quote about her was, death waits for no man, but it did wait for this woman. Stop that. And I, want I that love that so much. I love it so much. Wow. Wow. That's the story of uh, Violet Jessup, who everybody called Miss Unsinkable. So step aside, Molly Brown. Oh, my God. Yeah. Right? Man, I kind of just want to call it. I don't even want to follow that up. (laughs) (laughs) Damn, dude. Good work. Love that story so much. Yeah, that's a good one. Uh, Can you source your shit? I can, I can. Um, so, good old, I know this is surprising. Wikipedia. 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 com. Hmm. This place called Aussie.com. I don't know. Okay. And then there's this website called Museum Hack that tells these kind of stories, like, kind of in fun, young terms or whatever. Mm-hmm. But... It was so chock full of terrible boat puns <laughs> that I literally didn't even read the entire article. I read like half and I was like, all right, I need you to settle down. Boat puns. Yeah, I'm like sinking and just any any sort of seafaring was it, pun. Was it written by Dylan? Maybe. It's about it the Titanic and full of puns. How could it not be? It might have been. Random sections were bold. Random sections were normal font. No, that's The whole thing was chaos. <laughs> um, but if you're into puns, museumhack.com has you covered. Place to go. Um, and then obviously the 
I mean, it didn't really give me any information about Violet, but the documentary Mystery of the Britannic was fascinating. Um, I tried to find, like, the name of her memoir, her memoirs, but everything just says, like, Titanic Survivor Memoirs or Memoirs of a Titanic Survivor. And I think it was just, like, journals and things that she'd written throughout her life that people combined later on Mm -hmm. to make into a book. Um, I think, or maybe like interviews and stuff all combined, but I don't like, she didn't sit down and write a book Yeah. and title it like death can't beat me or anything, which I wish she had, but she had other priorities, retired life, her mystery marriage. Wow. That's a a good find on a babe unsinkable violet jessup the woman who can't be killed uh we share a birthday so i think that she passed on some of that Mm -hmm. to me i love that except for i know that she didn't because i broke my foot because i fell over it didn't kill you though (laughs) that's true so she had like terrible injuries too so there's a more like i mean yes tuberculosis isn't the the best anyway Taylor, <laughs> tell me about your babe. Okay, my babe. Um, it's super possible that you've heard of her because she was in the news a lot last year, but I had never heard of her. Okay. Have you ever heard of Mitzi Shore? I don't think so. Great. Me neither. And Your I bells was are ringing. loving life researching this lady. Okay, so she was born Lillian Seidel. On July 25th, 1930, in Wisconsin. So her dad was a traveling salesman, which I love. My papa, my great-grandpa, was a traveling Mm -hmm. salesman, and he, like, sold, like, fly swatters and pens and shit. Amazing. And so, like, my family still has a whole bunch of, like, old-timey fly swatters with my great-grandpa's. Yeah, it's a great time. So I loved that her dad was a traveling salesman. Um, she met a guy named Sammy Shore in 1950, um, and she left the University of Wisconsin-Madison, where she was studying art, to marry him and move to L.A. So Sammy Shore was a comedian, and he was a long-running opening act for Elvis. So this guy was kind of a big deal. Like, people knew him. He was a pretty famous comedian. Um, so in 1972, April of... Sammy and Mitzi and a comedy friend, a comedy writer friend of theirs named Rudy DeLuca opened the comedy store on Sunset Strip in West Hollywood. Do you know of the comedy store? I've heard of it. Yeah. So the comedy store is like kind of the place for comedians in L.A. Slash, I think, kind of nationally, like just like general cool kids. It's yeah, it's like where you want to be headlining consistently is at the comedy store. Um, so originally it started as a place for Sammy to perform and basically practice when he wasn't touring with Elvis. So, um, it was the first stand up, all stand up comedy venue in the world. It was the first one because stand up was kind of mixed into like nightclubs with music and kind of like a vaudeville type thing. Not, not like vaudeville obviously, but more like variety act. Right. Um, And so the comedy store was the first one that was just stand up. Um, So while Sammy was not in L.A. and was while he was out on the road, 
Mitzi was in charge of the day-to-day operations of the comedy store, which included picking the comedians to perform. So she would pick a handful of comedians and then schedule them throughout the night. And everybody, everybody that worked with her was like, yeah, she had a real knack for scheduling comedians in the way that would best shine each comedian. So you'd start out with somebody and then it'd be followed up by this guy. And that guy was your closer. Like she just had a really good eye for comedic timing and how best to have an audience really love it. Um, so she's actually the one that coined the name, the comedy store. Nice. Um, and it just stuck. So because Sammy Shore was kind of a big deal comedian, it meant that he had big deal comedian friends along with this comedy writer, Rudy DeLuca. Um, so famous comedian pals of the owners started showing up pretty much just to practice. Like they would try out new material on audiences when they weren't touring or when they weren't on the road um, and just see kind of what stuck. They would sit on in each other's sets. So then they would give each other feedback. So it was kind of like the conference, but for yes. just in one place. Yeah. Um, but they were having huge names there just regularly just hanging out like Red Fox, Tim Conway, Buddy Hackett, Jonathan Winters, like all of these big famous comedians Dude. were just there. Um, also, it meant that new comedians could come in and watch the people that they admired most do what they were best at and practice. So then new comedians were able to kind of watch and like get tips on, oh, this is how you would develop a set. So it kind of became this like whole community. Um, It just happened. It just so happened that the same month that the comedy store opened in LA, Johnny Carson moved the tonight show filming from New York to LA, which meant that all of these comedians from New York moved to LA to follow the show because the tonight show was famous for having comedians on that weren't famous to do a set. And so they followed The Tonight Show. So Mitzi started prowling The Tonight Show tapings for comedians to play at the comedy store. And so she would snag people and be like, hey, I want you in this slot at the store. So she also is the one that came up with the idea of a black wall. So in comedy venues, they would have a bunch of posters and shit behind the performer. And Mitzi was like, no, no, we need to have the audience focused on one the person. person yeah and not get distracted by reading some poster or reading about who's coming next or whatever they need to just be watching this person's show so she put a all black wall behind her performers so that it was just the performer awesome. so mitzi kind of like fostered this feeling of she called it an artist colony rather than a nightclub because she kind of fostered this idea that stand-up was an art form and that this is how you could it is. hone that craft right it totally is and so she um, she saw it kind of like like stand up school almost where she would be like, yeah, you know, here are these really accomplished performers mixed in with these people who are fresh faced and not really a name yet, but that are really talented. So it kind of was just this like awesome blend. So she kind of saw it as this like family kind of thing. Right. So, um, in 1974, so cool. It's so cool. I was like having the best time researching this lady. Cause it's like, this is the coolest thing I've ever heard. Cause like, I've heard that's like what every artist wants. Yeah. And like, I've heard of the comedy store and like, you know, a lot of my favorite comedians perform frequently at the comedy store. And I had no idea that this is how it kind of came to be. So, um, 
1974, she and Sammy Shore divorced. Um, in the divorce settlement, she got entire ownership of the comedy store. Yes. Yeah. And he says that it was to lower his alimony payment. <laughs> All right. Whatever, dude. Which I love. I love that he's like, yeah, I mean, I was either going to have to pay her a lot of money or give up the comedy store. So I did this. And she ran with it. So the comedy store became this huge draw. Um, Richard Pryor like, was. I'm so sorry. No, no, don't be sorry. It's, it seemed like it was her passion anyways. Mm-hmm. And so, of course, she should have ownership of it because mm-hmm. then she can make it phenomenal. I'm sorry. Carry on. Mm-hmm. No, 100%. Um, so the comedy store kind of becomes this big attraction, um, not the least because Richard Pryor was famous for frequently trying out sets. Like he was there like four to five nights a week. Um, Dang, dude. Yeah. Richard Pryor was like, all over the comedy store. So while this was happening and they were getting this big draw, Mitzi went out and got some comedians to routinely perform. So she would schedule them per night in just the right order. Um, So let me just read you off some of the people that were in this group of comedians that she went and found and fostered at the comedy store. You ready? Oh boy. I don't know. Okay, let's do it. First one, Robin Williams. Stop it. David Letterman. Jay Leno, Gary Shandling, Andy Kaufman, Michael Keaton. Oh my God. Right? Uh, right? Yeah. Yeah, I know. Robin like, Williams, I, mm-hmm. I cannot get yep. into it right now, but wow. I know. I read that and I was like, oh my God. Like, Wait, what year is this? Uh, this is 19... mid-1970s. Okay. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So um, Mitzi developed an idea of paid regulars. So paid regulars, they um, she would hand select them and she would post um, big. They would basically get their name written outside the comedy store on like the marquee. And so it was a big deal to be a paid regular because Mitzi handpicked you, um, decided that you were good enough to advertise and use as a draw and so you would get paid being a paid regular so yeah. it's a big deal she the whole way that she selected comics was based on the idea of like authenticity in stand-up so oh. her thing is like okay it's not enough to just make some funny jokes you need to be an actual person on stage yeah and, and so a lot of her comedians quote-unquote her comedians are famous for still to this day taking situations from their daily lives that are terrible or awkward or whatever and making light of it and and having it be a relatable thing. So so she kind of cultivated the idea of like relatable comedy and comedy wow. that wasn't just like jokes, just one-off jokes. Right. Um, so that's kind of how you would kind of catch Mitzi's eyes if you really nailed that idea. So the 80s and 90s at the Comedy Store saw Whoopi Goldberg, Chris Delia, Jim Carrey, and Arsenio Hall roll through there. Wow. A lot of famous comedians in there. Wow. Um, Yeah. So the Comedy Store started out as one room. Um, It started out as a single kind of uh, storefront. Um, In 1976, she purchases the entire building to make a multi-stage venue. And that's still the state that the comedy store is in. Um, 
So then that meant that she had her main stage, which is where she had all of her paid regulars, and then she had these little side stages. The whole idea behind the comedy store was that it was this kind of development heaven, right? So very, very much like the conference where you would go, you'd try out your sets, you'd get tips, and then you could practice throughout the week. Um, um, so while this sounds ideal, in 1979, the comedy store strike happens. So... Oh. So, because of her whole ideology that this is basically school, she didn't pay anyone except for the paid regulars, mm. which were not very many people. The vast yeah. majority of the comedians that were at the comedy store were not paid regulars. So, it was, she kind of ran on this idea of like, oh, well, I'm paying you in the reputation that you're getting working at the comedy store. And it's like, yeah, that's great, except that that's not, we can't pay our rent in that right that might pay off later but for right now for right now we need to get paid like we need to have actual money yep. so um it all kind of happened when she opened the second room and still wasn't paying the quote-unquote lesser comedians not lesser but you know what i mean not yeah yeah, yeah, comedians, yeah comedians um so members of the strike were david letterman jay leno gary shandling they all joined the strike and they oh. were like yeah like we've been working with her for years and it sucks that we're not getting paid like it really sucks so um she reportedly was heartbroken when she looked out the window and saw david letterman at the picket line heartbroken because oh. she was like i've worked with this guy for years and the reporter is like yeah so don't you want to pay him and she's like well no this is what the whole thing is this is like collaborative thing like that should be what you're getting out of it so she felt kind of betrayed by all of these um comedians that were striking she wouldn't budge until um during one of the strike protests an anti-strike comedian because there were a number of them too that were like no this is fine like we're right we're getting exposure we're getting to work alongside people like richard Pryor, and and like this is fine so there were a whole bunch of anti-strike comedians so hard. I mean, it would be so hard, especially like, if you're in this group that's so close and communal. It's your peers and your friends and you've worked so yeah. hard and you like, I can see both sides of it. Yeah. It would be that's, a really hard thing to pick sides on for sure. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, during one of these protests, one of the anti-strike comedians drove his car through the picket line. Um, no. so nobody was hurt. Jay Leno um, pretended to get hit by the car to make it big news. So he like slapped the car hood, which is like the most Jay Leno thing I've ever heard in my entire life. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, yeah. He like slapped the car hood and like fell to the ground and like people ran over to him and he was like, no, 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 I'm fine. I'm fine. But it, it got her attention. And so as soon as that happened, Mitzi was like, okay, no, no, this has escalated. What do you guys want to get paid? Like, she immediately was like, okay, nope, nope, this is too much, I'll pay you guys. Because she cares about them. Right, which, it sucks that she is the reason that the strike happened, but I also give her a lot of credit for as soon as things got any amount of out of control, she was like, yep, okay, fine, this is not worth it, it. it's not worth it, like, let's just figure it out. So she agrees to pay the comics $25 a set only on the weekends. So... Wow, that's not even... 
Yeah. So some of the comedians like Gary Shandling was like, okay, this is, we're, we're getting what we wanted. We're getting paid if we work on the weekends. And the rest of the comedians were like, yeah, but also no, like there's only limited spots on the weekends. So no. And so um, they continue to fight. So finally she agrees. Okay, fine. So she agrees to pay them $25 a set, but all the time, no matter the set and how many times they performed a week. Then everybody was pretty happy about it, um, which at first I was like, what? But it's also like the 70s. So like $25 is probably more than current day $25. Yeah, I mean. No. It's not a ton. It's, I mean, it's not even but anywhere like, close to being a ton, but it's. I get it. Like I do a show in Chicago and I put in three months of work and I get a hundred dollars stipend. So like. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I right. get it. <laughs> right. And you're like, yeah, okay. And I'm like, well, I got paid, so. <laughs> right. I think that's just kind of the mindset of performers of being like, this is fine. <laughs> so, yeah. um, so one of the things that, that happened because of the strike, it meant that comedy clubs around the country, especially in New York, had to kind of see this and be like, well, shit, because all the comedians were like, hang on, if they're getting paid, why yeah, can't we exactly. get paid? So it kind of became this whole thing. So it was fun because I was researching this one last night. This was my research cramming one. And I, it was on Labor Day. So I was like, oh, that's kind of fun. Like it that literally cool. changed like, like the idea of paid labor in comedy because of the strike. So um, it also meant that uh, it kind of bumped up the whole comedy boom of the 80s because uh-huh. comedy comedy clubs around the country suddenly had to be charging more of their patrons because they were having to pay their performers. So it meant that they were just getting more money, which meant that they could get more publicity. So it kind of is what caused the huge explosion of comedy in the 80s, also because of all of these performers that she was bringing up. Like, think about the people that did comedic movies in the 80s and all of them came through the comedies. Like, yeah, there was yeah. this really great article that talked about her being the grandmother of comedy because she oh. literally started a whole like generation of performers that are now who we think of as comedy icons, like started because of Mitzi Shore. Isn't that cool? That's so sweet. So also, um, she must have had the best sense of humor in the world. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah. Oh, my God. So it's a little bit funny when you're reading about Mitzi Shore because um, she died last year. She died of April last year. No. Yeah. Yeah. So she was in the news a lot last year. Um, And all of these people were making like tributes and stuff and whatever. So reading articles now, that's why there's so little on her early life, because it's all like you type in Mitzi Shore and it's all like obituaries and like tributes and stuff. Right. but it's interesting because everyone kind of talks about the strike a lot, which I understand because it's a big part of her yeah. legacy. But it also, it's one thing because a lot of things that I read didn't touch on the idea that Mitzi was really famous for promoting female comedians and LGBTQ comedians. Um, so mm-hmm. she would, she had the first ever all-female comedy night. She... Good she would schedule LGBTQ performers in like primo time slots. Like she was famous for like giving a voice to people who in the seventies and eighties didn't really have one. Um, So 
it's another one of those kind of like mixed legacy ones where like she did a lot of good and she did something that ultimately made something really good, you know? Yeah. So um, despite the strike and kind of how sketchy all of that business was, um, she super changed the face of the comedy industry, both by supporting a supportive familial culture and encouraging voices, but by also doing things wrong. Like she got it super wrong digging in on the pay issue, but ultimately that strike caused by her changed the comedy industry. And she gave in as soon as things started getting really hairy. Right. Like as soon as there was actual risk involved, she was like, nope, nope. Mm -hmm. Which is Mm -hmm. so rare. (laughs) And it's sweet too, because like not sweet might be the wrong word, but it was interesting reading article, like reading interviews from her during the strike, because it's super clear that she's, it's clear that she's a little confused because she views all of them as her friends. Yeah. Rather than her employees. Employees, yeah. I And I think that that's kind of where some of the disconnect was because she just truly didn't understand. She was like, well, this has been fine for 10 years and nobody yeah. has really said anything. And so I think that it kind of caught her off guard more than anything, which is why I think somebody driving through and presumably hitting Leno, who was like one of her early dudes. Yeah. I think that that caused her to be like, okay, this is stupid. Like all of this is stupid. Of course, whatever you want. Like, so, I mean, ultimately I give her, I give her a lot of credit for that. Um, yeah. Fun fact, Mitzi Shore is Polly Shore's mom. <laughs> Are you? So yes, that's a little weird, but uh, yeah. So, so she died in April of last year, of 2018. Um, but the comedy store obviously still lives on. They still do paid regulars. So they still will have the big marquee outside saying who's headlining. Um, it's still viewed as a really kind of development venue. Awesome. So people will come and there will be these big headliner comedians, but it's not their current current tour it's material that nobody has heard because it's just them trying it out and then trying new stuff which i think is so cool so cool so anyway the next time we're in la let's go to the comedy store 100 percent. i was just there and i'm so mad that i didn't know about this Mm -hmm. yeah so yeah that's the really cool cool strange story of mitzi shore that's so cool Mm mm-hmm what a freaking dope legacy. Right? Right? I know. Yeah. It's so cool. It's so cool. Um, do you want me to sort of my shit? Uh, if you would, please. Yes. Uh, obviously, Wikipedia. Wikipedia. Although Wikipedia, I will say, was not as helpful as I expected, because it really just listed off the people that she helped their career. And I was yes. like, I don't care about any of these people. <laughs> like, Wikipedia, I just, I want... you name-dropping bitch. I want her thing. So um, I got a little bit from time.com from their article that they did when she died. Um, And then from another article from time that kind of talked about the comedy strike, but mostly I got it from the history tab of the comedy store.com. They have the entire story on their website. So if you are in LA, go to the comedy store and uh, check out, Check out Mitzi's whole business. Man, that's real dope. Real dope. 
I'm so glad I know that story and who she is and who, wow, that's, I love people that cultivate other people's art. Oh God, I know the coolest. Cause it's so vital as artists. We get so much shit every day. Like whenever I tell people, they're like, Oh, what do you do? And I'm like, Oh, I'm an actor. And then they're like, right. But what do you do? It's like, no, that's no, I'm an actor. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, so irritating because then I have to go into like well how do you act as a day job and I'm like okay fine let's get into this Mm -hmm. and it's (laughs) just yeah yeah the arts should be appreciated you know what I mean and stand-up comedians are absolutely artists because I love stand-up so much and I don't understand it no I would never I don't understand how anybody does that and I love it I love it so much. Mm-hmm. There are multiple stand-up performances that I quote on a daily basis, and there are a couple that I could probably quote from beginning to end. Yeah, guaranteed. Because they're so good. Wow, that's really cool. I wonder what she like if she did stand-up at all in her life, or if she just aspired to it, or if she just enjoyed it. I didn't find anything that said that she did stand-up. Yeah, she just just that she had a real it. good eye for it. Yeah, that's really cool. Yep. Um, Taylor, my next question is, yes. do you have a lady of the week that you would like to tell me about? I will. I can if, go first if you want yes, me to. Yes, that would be great. Okay, I'm real stoked about my lady of the week this week. Um, I just finished a book called I Do It With The Lights On mm-hmm. by Whitney Waythor. Um, she's my lady of the week, if that wasn't obvious. She's mm-hmm. dope as hell. Um, she has, what is it called? PCOS, um, polycystic ovarian syndrome, I think it's called. Okay. Um, but it's a huge thing, like obviously worldwide, but definitely nationwide in the U.S., where women have this ovarian um, syndrome where they gain weight at such a fast rate that like all um, it's usually around like college age mm-hmm. like they're gaining weight so fast that they don't immediately recognize themselves in a group of people or in a photo or in a mirror or wow. they're running into stuff because their body is expanding faster than their brain can comprehend like this is my circumference and this is my physical you know what I mean yeah um And no matter what they do, they cannot lose it. Like, it's not a matter of eating healthy and dieting because they all do. But anyway, so she has this book called I Do It With The Lights On that goes through her entire life up until now. And I think she's, like, maybe early 30s. Like, she's really young. Mm -hmm. And it talks about her struggles with her weight and her body identity throughout her entire life. And my God, Taylor, I have never identified with something so immediately Hmm. on like the first, I mean, it is, it like, it's so comforting and encouraging to hear people who are like, yeah, I thought this when I was in middle school and that was normal to me. And I'm like, Oh my God, I thought that in middle school and I thought I was crazy. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. Mm -hmm. To feel so validated. It's, Oh my God. It is a crazy awesome book. It's a super fast read. I read it in like two days. Um, but it is so, so good. 
She is also the star of the, I think it's a HGTV or IO or something. I don't remember. Um, but she has a show uh, called My Big Fat Fabulous Life where mm-hmm. they follow her. She also started the No Body Shame movement and they go on a No Body Shame cruise every year. Oh my That's God. A Royal Caribbean cruise to the Caribbean and just like go nuts. And every day there's like, Zumba classes and yoga classes and dance parties on the deck and like they're active and they're healthy but they're also very like accepting of like my body has fat on it Mm -hmm. what else like right who cares it like oh it's she's so cool and she's a dancer and she's so good at dance and it's amazing and I love her and I aspire to have her just in your face, I don't give a fuck. This is who I am mentality. I love that. It's so great. I highly recommend the book to everyone. I love that a lot. She's um, I thought of who my lady of the week is. Okay, tell me. My lady of the week is actually two ladies for the week. Hey, um, I did this last week. <laughs> yeah. Um, <clears throat> it's mostly Alana Glazer from Broad City. Dope. Because, so I followed her on Instagram um, because I thought like, oh man, I like her show a lot. And it's actually been kind of the best because she's so politically active. Cool. And I just so aspire to be like them. Like um, I follow Abby too, which is why it's both of those ladies. Um, Not the least because Broad City is one of, the most brilliant shows of our generation. And I will fight anyone who says otherwise. Um, But because she posted the other day, um, a thing on Instagram, which one Abby, sorry. um, You're good. Posted and was like, Hey, how many of you guys volunteer? If you don't volunteer, what are the things that are keeping you from volunteering? They're so focused on getting people involved and getting people educated on political issues and are constantly, both of them, just posting links to resources and election reminders and, hey, you don't know who you're going to vote for? Here's a list telling you exactly what each candidate believes and all of those things sourced. Like, they're just so focused on making sure that everybody going up into the presidential election slash local elections in 2020 yeah. are informed and and making as a as as non-biased media of a choice as possible. Yeah. And I love that. I yeah. it goes along really well with um my lady last week that was all about like educating women especially. Um yeah. And I just think that it can't be a bad thing for people to be more informed and I think that they're especially great examples because they're totally comfortable acknowledging when they didn't know about it and then posting like hey I just found out about this and I've never felt comfortable talking about it until now because I didn't feel like I knew enough and now I do know enough so here's how you can know enough about this like it's just I love it I just love it it's just a constant little pop-up in my Instagram of like political activism in a way that's not belittling or dismissive of another side it's just like hey Truly, here's how you can figure out what you believe 
and which candidates closely align with what you believe. I really like when people admit, like, I didn't know this, and I just learned this. Totally. Or, no, I don't know about that. Please tell me. Like, when people acknowledge their own lack of knowledge and then actively learn and put that knowledge to use, it just, it's a sign of a mature adult that is comfortable in themselves that I love because I hate more than anything when people pretend to know everything about everything Mm -hmm. for the sake of being the person that knows everything. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. I learned, I, I had a friend, um, a long time ago that would do that. That would be like, I don't know enough about this topic. Yeah. I don't know enough about this topic to have a conversation about it. And it was just as simple as that. And I remember thinking like, wow, that's the best phrase I've ever heard because it's not dismissive, but it's, um, it's, I'm not willing to get riled up about this or to spout something that might be misinformation. Yeah. And so I've tried to incorporate that into my vocab as much as possible. If somebody brings something up and they're like, isn't this crazy? And I'm like, I don't know enough about that. I don't know. I have no idea. I don't have an opinion about this because I just don't know about it. So I, I try to do the same thing. I try and be the, like, I have heard of this. I don't know enough about it. What do you know about it? Like, yeah. what can you tell me about it? Please yeah. educate me to the furthest of your extent. So that yeah. moving forward, I know a little bit more. I think that's the only way to do it. I think so. Mm-hmm. I don't know. <sighs> yeah, dude. Also, on the political activism, 2020 presidential everything, did you see the video of Elizabeth Warren? Refusing to talk shit about Bernie Sanders? Yes. Yeah. It is my favorite thing. Yeah, I'm pretty stoked to be able to say President Warren. It's, It's my favorite thing. Yeah. I want that so badly. But this was great. Man. Also, there's a lightning storm happening, like, just, it's not across the lake, but it's, like, over the lake, I think, and it looks super cool, but I'm also excited for when it's over here and will be a thunderstorm, and I can sleep through it like a baby. Yeah, dude, I love sleeping through thunderstorms. It's the best thing. It's the most relaxing sleep. Yes, which is so crazy, because when I was a kid, I was terrified of them. Oh, really? I've always loved thunderstorms. I had a, like, recurring dream as a kid that my house was going to burn down, and I thought it was going to start because of lightning. Oh. And so I was, like, terrified of them as a kid, but now I love them. Yeah, they're pretty great. That's all. Don't get lightninged. Thank you. I appreciate it. I love you. I love you. I hope your brain feels better in the the next few days, and I will talk to you soon. Okay. Have a great week. Thank you, you too. Bye. Bye.